The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It's not a national health service, it's a national COVID service. And we don't have a health minister, we have a COVID minister. Four. If we convince ourselves that we can rely on the magic money tree, then lockdown may never end, or it may certainly be much longer than it needs to be. Three. I had a man in his 30s sobbing because he'd lost his job, he can't pay his rent, he can't pay his bills. And I thought, you know, he's a suicide waiting to happen. I'm going to say a sentence now, Liam, that we don't often say on Planet Normal. So let's have a bit of a pause. All credit to the government. Make a two on your trumpet. Dun, 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 dun. One. We have liftoff. Welcome again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. And it's a special trip today in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, because Planet Normal is 25. Yes, this is our 25th episode. We've reached a quarter of a century. And this is the week, Alison, when the sound of Covid-bopping cavalry could be heard coming over the mountain, with news of a Pfizer vaccine, which doesn't prevent infection, but in early tests has, as you've written in your Telegraph column, a 90% success in stopping the virus from emerging by readying the body to fight it off. We don't yet know how it will fare with the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, and we can't yet be sure how safe it will be. But amidst all the doom graph darkness, with so many struggling with lockdown gloom, this is surely, Alison, a shaft of light, a ray at least of sunshine, the prospect of good news. Yeah, Liam, we really needed some good news, didn't we? And I know that the cynics are already piling in, but... Let's just say a little prayer of thanks that Pfizer and BioNTech have come up with a vaccine. They're claiming 90% effectiveness. Really don't know all the details. We don't know how safe it will be. But it does seem that the people who get it, that the risk of transmitting the virus to another person, if you're not clinically ill, will be a lot lower. So at least it will drive the bloody R rate down. (laughs) And we love hearing about that R rate, don't we? (laughs) You know, they had the, the Collins English Dictionary had this week was words of the year lockdown all the oh, all the dreadful social distance just dreadful you thought the day the, <laughs> copyright a person i've never ever heard the word lockdown again you love this there are major logistical problems with this miracle vaccine it has to be stored at minus 70 degrees and i was just thinking about matt hancock on the phone to curries okay right i'd like 376 <laughs> no, I, really, I, need, I need a really big freezer <laughs> the biggest that you have By Tuesday, if you could get us 376,000 freezers, I mean, what are the chances that we have got the refrigeration capacity for this? I mean, absolutely nothing. There is another vaccine coming up on the rails, which is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which I think looks a bit more plausible and and, and doesn't have to be kept in in a freezer. I mean, I've got two clear views on this, really. The first is that it is a godsend to the elderly and to those with conditions who've been having to shield and haven't been able to take part in normal life because they've been too scared. So the vaccination campaign will begin with the over 80s and care home residents, which means that Robert and Josephine, who've been following and all the people who are in their dreadful predicament will have, you know, the opportunity to meet again. But I am prepared to have it and to endorse it 
if it means we can get out of this absolutely horrendous situation we're in. And I'm going to be honest now, my big fear about this vaccine, which the government, you'll notice, pulled out of the hat, didn't they, the week after they imposed the second lockdown. Do we really think they didn't know about the vaccine last week? I don't think so. However cynical you are, it's, it's never, never enough. enough. It? It's never enough. <laughs> but I think that, that the potential downside is that a vaccine will give the government an excuse to string out the lockdown, even longer. So I've heard this week that people in Whitehall are already saying that once the vaccine has been given to the over 70s, strict social distancing will have to be maintained because there is still potential for the NHS to be overwhelmed. No, absolutely not. We cannot have these scientists and bureaucrats imposing a terrible new normal on us indefinitely. What do you think? I think it is good news. When lockdown first happened and we launched Planet Normal 25 episodes ago, we were supportive of lockdown, weren't we? Absolutely. It was only mm. when the data started to suggest that lockdown wasn't the best strategy that we started to seek out scientific voices that were more sceptical, that we started to change our views. It's not that we're against a vaccine even though we want herd immunity. We just think it was a bad policy to wait for a vaccine. Mm. I think there will be some pushback from the population here, and the population who are sceptical about the vaccine will be dubbed as you know mad and thick and anti-vaxxers and all the rest of it. I mean, there's been pushback on mass vaccination since Edward Jenner launched the first smallpox vaccine back in the late 18th mm. century. And of course, a lot of people still remember the MMR scandal in the 1990s, the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Though we should say that the doctor that promoted the link between MMR and autism has been discredited. He's been struck off. Andrew Wakefield has been struck off by the general medical council and his concerns are widely seen to have been unfounded but i still think there will be people who don't want to take the vaccine for a while mm. they'll want to see how the safety implications of it pan out there will be links made albeit scientifically unfounded but in terms of national consciousness there'll be links made with the, the thalidomide scandal that we grew up with allison mm. In the 70s, where a morning after treatment for women that was cleared by the regulatory bodies concerned led to really awful birth deformities and the drug company involved tried to deny that link until it was proved we should say after a, after a newspaper campaign mm. by by the Sunday Times as was so the really big decision the government has to make is do they make this compulsory and I doubt that they would dare to do that. And if they don't make it compulsory, there will be people who think they're being rational and arguably they may be rational. If they're 20, 30, they're personally at no risk of COVID. Mm. If the evidence continues to show that if you're asymptomatic and you have COVID, you are not infectious, we still don't know the answer to that question definitively. There's a scientific debate raging about that. So I think there will be some pushback. And if we are going for 40 million doses of this Pfizer vaccine, well, there are 12 million people over 65, Alison, mm. who should surely be among those who are prioritised. Uh, they're the most vulnerable group. And if each of those needs two doses, that's 24 million right there yeah. <laughs> before you've started, plus all the care workers, plus all the health workers. So it may be 
because of the logistics that you talk about and you're right to point out, and because of a shortage of the vaccine, if it turns out to be the only one that the world accepts does the job safely, then it may be that this vaccine has to be rationed. And to say, I'm not going to take it, but I support others taking it, may turn out not to be a kind of irrational anti-vaxxer mm. position to take. It may actually turn out to be a socially acceptable and even laudable position. Yeah, and three in four Britons have said they would agree to have the COVID vaccine. Um, you're going to love this bit. 40% want politicians to take it first to prove that it's safe. And I think we can all look forward to uh, Matt Hancock, perhaps on Tower Green, <laughs> With the ceremonial first COVID vaccine, pulling down his uh, stripy trousers. I mean, you know. What, uh, what an image. I think a little prick in Mr Hancock wouldn't go amiss, would it really? Uh, Not in the same headline, Your Honour. <laughs> <laughs> we remember, don't we, when John Gummer, the Agriculture yes. Secretary, oh. fed a beef burger to Cordelia. Cordelia. God, where is she now? Yes. Cordelia Gummer. She'd get her own chat show off the back of this. She would. <laughs> Force-fed a BSE. During the BSE crisis, BSE of course. Burger. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say a sentence now, Liam, that we don't often say on Planet Normal, so let's have a bit of a pause. All credit to the government. dun 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 da, da. <laughs> <laughs> So the government did get in early and placed an order for 30 million doses of the vaccine. And this was the first agreement that Pfizer signed with any country. So so this is something we don't appear to have got wrong yet, which is quite amazing. But I think something that's interesting in terms of the pushback isn't just that there's going to be some cynicism amongst the population, understandably, about the vaccine. We've just seen this Tory MPs founding this thing called the COVID Recovery Group. Indeed. Mark Harper, Mark Harper, former chief whip, serious bloke. Serious bloke. And you picked up on him. You quite like him. I do quite like him. Your kind of Tory. My kind of Tory. And Hair oh. like a Thunderbird. <laughs> Okay, I like smooth Tories. I'm, that's all right. Um, so I think this is a clear response, really, to Nigel Farage's Reform Party. Yeah. We all know Tory backbenchers are being bombarded with furious emails from their constituents because I've been sending some of those myself. So constituents in the South are pointing out that their county is basically COVID-free and that they're in the middle of this pointless and destructive lockdown. So I think it was quite interesting that Mark Harper, writing in The Telegraph, said, you know, the country's badly in need of a different strategy for living with the virus that doesn't require us to keep living under a series of damaging lockdowns and arbitrary restrictions. So very much the planet normal point of view. And the CRG is calling for something you've called for, Liam, which is basically a cost benefit analysis every time they're about to put an area under new restrictions. What is it going to cost in terms of children's health, all the other diseases we know about and unemployment, which is starting to really take off now? As you said, Alison, rightly, I think, and our colleague Phil Johnson has said the same thing in The Telegraph, another of our distinguished columnists, this vaccine may actually politically trap the Prime Minister and make the debate as we approach early December when the, this current lockdown is meant to be lifted even more fraught. And yes, this lockdown was approved by Parliament last week. There was only that parliamentary vote because the Tory backbenchers kicked up last time. Mm. During that parliamentary vote, there are 30-odd Tory rebels, including Sir Graham Brady, who runs the 1922 committee, including Sir Charles Walker, his 
deputy. But I think what's really interesting, you also had a lot of very, very heavyweight Tory backbench MPs, including Theresa May, by the way, who gave an astonishing speech as we we bigged her up in the Planet Normal Mm. column on Monday. And Steve Baker, who can never be underestimated, who's good at marshalling those backbench troops. How will those figures, will they convert from abstentions into straight no's if there is another parliamentary vote, if the government seeks to extend the lockdown from early December off the back of the idea that there is a vaccine and wouldn't it be a tragedy to lift Mm. the lockdown now when the vaccine is just around the corner? But if you think about it, Alison, I do think the government is going to lift the lockdown. If not, why is it that since we've had news of this Pfizer vaccine or news announced of this Pfizer vaccine, the government has since then wheeled out all these frankly ridiculous sounding arrangements for students being transported (laughs) from university back home. If the lockdown isn't going to be lifted by early December, then you couldn't have those students making those moves and those arrangements being in place. So the government seems to have upped the ante in backing its original statement that the lockdown will be lifted in early December even though this vaccine has now been announced. And if it isn't lifted in early December, there is going to be a serious row in Parliament. And we could see, at the very least, the government having to rely on Labour votes to get this through the House, which is never a good place to be. Yes, I think that that last graph, you know, the the Arthur Daly graph, you know, oh, lovely, got a lot of predicted deaths here. How many do you want? Um, you know, I mean, that was lit- good accent. <laughs> that was literally. And I think that the growing absurdity. So I think my favourite story of the week was one of these dreadful sage scientists, you know, looking like some hobgoblin out of Tolkien, crawled out of his burrow. <laughs> And he said, oh, well, the British people would be allowed to have Christmas, but not until next summer. And, you know, I think I think they're gradually... I put next summer in my spreadsheet, <laughs> so it's, it's real. Literally, the algorithm says you can have Christmas on June the 19th. Yeah. And everyone is literally now thinking, bog off. You know, I mean, even yeah. the most devout lockdown believers are, I think, starting to think some of this data is well dodgy. And I, what I want to say, Liam, to you is we've heard a lot about long COVID, haven't we? This is the terrible after effects of COVID in a small number of people. But what about long lockdown? Okay, this is the new condition now. This is the amazingly horrendous after effects that are going to come from lockdown. And a statistic that jumped out at me this week was from Professor Philip Thomas of Bristol University, who said that lockdown will end up costing the equivalent of 560,000 lives because of the health impact of the deep and prolonged recession, which is about to hit us. And Professor Thomas even said that the toll will exceed that of the UK's military and civilian losses in the Second World War. So I say to you, if lockdown was once a necessary evil, it is no longer necessary, just evil. And you, Liam, wrote a fantastic barnstorming Halligan piece on Sunday, didn't you? Can you you? just say that again? Yeah. (laughs) Gotta be nice occasionally, you know. But anyway, it's terrific. No pe- terrific piece, really pointing out as only you can about the teetering financial devastation. I mean, it is autumn in the magic money forest, isn't it? And all the all the pounds are fluttering down from the trees. Tell listeners what you were talking about. I mean, my concern is that the much of the Western world, including the, the economies that are meant to be really well run 
particularly the UK, the establishment seems to have convinced itself that it's different this time and we can just print money and the Bank of England can buy bonds off the Treasury and then they directly finance government spending and they finance the furlough scheme and that money then ends up in the bank accounts of ordinary people via their businesses due to furlough and that will end up being very inflationary. Our national debt is now above $2 trillion. It's now gone above 100% of our national income of GDP for the first time in our peacetime history. And the trouble is, Alison, if you can assume away any financial implications of lockdown, then you're not making a proper decision about lockdown because you're pretending there are no financial implications. Mm, mm. And so if we convince ourselves that we can rely on the magic money tree, then lockdown may never end or it may certainly be much longer than it needs to be. The point of a financial constraint is to focus the mind and make a proper decision. And that's not to put lives on one side and livelihoods on the other, because as we've been saying on Planet Normal for ages, do you remember that moment when we were talking to Mervyn King? Mm. Lockdowns cost lives. Economic nosedives cost lives. And of course they do. And I thought that Theresa May speech last week really was something, because there you had a middle-of-the-road conservative who, yes, she's got personal issues with Boris. Of course she has. She wouldn't be human if she didn't have. But I thought she really took flight during that Mm. speech, and it's well worth watching because she summarised very, very effectively the costs of lockdown in terms of depression, in terms of suicides, in terms of lost businesses, in terms of the finance, in terms of future debts that we're going to have to pay, in terms of kids, students, Mm. the losses of their precious young years and experiences. And I thought that was very, very powerful. But the big, big economic picture here is that our leaders, even arch conservatives in many cases, have convinced themselves that when it comes to paying for lockdown, national debt, national accounts, it's just too hard to worry about now. And we can just buy bonds off ourselves And history shows that never ends well. And we've been doing QE, quantitative easing, like crazy since the Lehman collapse of 2009. The global economy has never really recovered because of that, because of the kind of zombification effect on global commerce. And since lockdown, QE has cranked up even more. And I think future historians will look back with their heads in their hands. I mean, I obviously don't understand this at the deep kind of granular level that you do. But in your column, you wrote that the Bank of England is on course to own almost half the entire stock of UK public debt. Even D at maths O level can kind of understand that that's not a good scenario. Now, what we've seen is we, we know that this lockdown too is supposed to be ending on the 2nd of December. But we saw Rishi Sunak extending the furlough scheme to March next year. Now, What's that about, Liam? I mean, is it pushing away the, you know, they they know these horrendous consequences are coming. Is that what it's about? Or does it signify that they think we're going to have more lockdowns and he's just getting the precautions in first? What it means, Alison, is basically the government has taken a decision that it will extend lockdown for as long as it needs to, regardless of the financial cost. Mm. And it's made that decision in part because it's been fed dodgy graphs by a coterie of scientists. And it's also made that decision because it's assuming away the financial implications of what it's doing. 
I'm actually quite shocked that the media still hasn't really cottoned on to the fact that these headline unemployment numbers are much lower than actual unemployment. That's something that we've been talking about for a long time. We're looking at you know four and a half to five percent unemployment with the headline numbers at the moment, but actual unemployment. If you look at the PAYE numbers, if you look at the claimant counts, people claiming unemployment benefit and related benefits, they're up near seven, eight, nine percent, and that's still with millions of people on furlough. So I think Rishi Sunak has taken the decision he's taken. It's very difficult to be criticised for handing out money, so he's still getting a fabulous press. But he's a very financially sophisticated guy, and I'm just reading Michael Ashcroft's new biography of him, and he knows the financial implications of what he's doing. And my fear is that this reliance on printed money, this determination by our political class to ignore the financial realities of what they're doing could eventually come crashing down. Well, remember, it was Rishi Sunak, wasn't it, who went against the sort of Boris tide and stood up and said, we will have to learn to live without fear. Before we move on to to our interview, Liam, I thought we'd just have our Velma moment. (laughs) You're after another Scooby snack, aren't you? (laughs) There's huge demand for you making a fool of yourself, believe it or not. (laughs) So I was complaining last week, but I really got to say that when you said to me, Alison, you can become our HBO correspondent, what I had in mind was a fashionable American uh, network, not hospital bed occupancy, which... uh, (laughs) What did you you say to me? Instead of premieres, it was colossal. Yeah, not glamorous frocks. It's kind of dodgy, ill-fitting smocks, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, with your bare bottom at the back of the ill-fitting smock. But anyway. (laughs) Stop! Velma has got a very, very able informer, George, who he um, got stuff from last week. And George is updating Planet Normal. An NHS insider, right? NHS insider. So George said that this week... Total beds occupied with COVID, 11,800. And that's a mere 8% of all hospital beds in England. When they're saying these wards are full, what they're not telling you is that they've just sectioned off a bit for COVID, all right? Mm. And in the past 24 hours, 300 new admissions with COVID. There were 1,117 new COVID diagnoses. But Liam, that probably means people are being infected in hospital. In fact, we know that being infected in hospital, but weighed up against the 300 new admissions with COVID, 800 discharges of COVID patients. So as we keep saying, people are getting better. A lot of people are getting better and COVID is no longer a death sentence. So just to be clear, these aren't statistics you're going to find on any government websites available to the public, but these are statistics from Public Health England that you have had access to because you have a source within Public Health England who will remain anonymous for journalistic purposes, correct? That's correct. They are available, I think, on the NHS England dashboard, although I think they don't make it easy to get to them. But we're very grateful to George for providing us with weekly updates, which give a really clear picture of the state we're in and also said this week that there are not a single one of London's boroughs are in England's top 10 COVID hotspots. So the entire capital, Liam, all those restaurants and cafes and theatres and hotels are in lockdown and London is becoming clear of the coronavirus. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, 
mine. As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Often on Planet Normal, we invite big names to join us, don't we? Writers, celebrated scientists, policymakers, national newspaper editors. Other times during our 25 episodes and counting, we've invited ordinary, normal people with extraordinary things to say. Holly, the district nurse, was a memorable guest as she described the NHS front line during the first lockdown. 83-year-old Robert, of course, recently moved countless Planet Normal listeners to tears as he told of his battle to visit his wife Josephine, the love of his life, now unfortunately with dementia, living in a care home. And Alison, you've invited another extraordinary ordinary, if you like, to stir away in the Planet Normal guest pod this week. We had an extraordinary email from a busy GP in London who we've decided to call Claire and alter her voice. Claire wrote this very moving email to us, Liam, in which she said that she ended most days crying because she could no longer provide her patients with the standard of care that they deserved. And her examples were absolutely extraordinary. So I thought Planet Normal listeners would like to hear from Claire. And I asked her, What has it been like being a GP during lockdown? I suppose it's just seeing the vast numbers of patients who are just so distressed and frustrated uh, because it's so difficult at the moment to get treatment for anything other than COVID. So maybe if I tell you a little bit about what life is like in the GP surgery, because I think for many people, they've got the impression that GP surgeries are now shut or the NHS is shut. So we've had these conflicting messages, save the NHS, and people interpret that to mean try and stay away. But then the government say, but the NHS is open. And actually, (laughs) neither really is true. So when we first went into lockdown back in um, March, fairly suddenly, didn't we? Fairly Mm. fairly abruptly. So really, there's no time to prepare for that. What happened was almost overnight, we had to change from being face to face with patients to virtually entirely telephone consultations. And we did that for a number of reasons. Partly, it was to protect the staff, because obviously, we didn't know a lot about the COVID then. seemed to be very infectious. It seemed to be pretty devastating. We had all those scary pictures on the television from Italy. Um, And we needed to protect our staff. But obviously, if everybody got COVID in the first week or so, there'd be no one left to treat the patients. But also, because a lot of our patients are vulnerable, people who are coming to the surgery are elderly or pregnant or have got other underlying health conditions. So we don't want to put them all in the waiting room together and risk their health. So there was some sense in doing that. If we wanted to see a patient face to face or they needed to be seen, we did see them. But again, you have to remember at the beginning, a lot of practices didn't have enough PPE to do that safely. We didn't have screens in place and such like. So it took a little while to get that up and running. But right from the beginning, we were offering as many phone consultations a day as we would appointments. The problem came with referring people then to secondary care because that's where it's been really difficult because secondary care pretty much shut down apart from COVID. Appointments they already had for follow-up were cancelled or converted to phone appointments 
And then the consultant would send them back to us for all the tests that would normally be done in hospital scans and blood tests and so on, which take twice as long to get done because they're only seeing half the number of patients because of all this deep cleaning between each patient. So everything's taking a lot longer. Obviously, routine surgeries and things don't go ahead. So hip replacements and hernias and cataracts and that sort of thing. And I've had patients come to me in tears saying, when am I ever going to get this operation done? You know, I'm in pain. Sometimes we refer them three or four times to different hospitals trying to get them. Or they'll be on the waiting list for three or four months and they haven't even got an appointment. And then the hospital says, now go back to your GP and get another referral because, you know, your referral's sort of time expired. Oh, goodness. But uh, obviously that's been a huge amount of work. Well, we've heard previously on Planet Normal, I don't know if you heard it, Claire, was a, a district nurse called Holly who spoke very movingly about even calling up GPs and saying, please come and help, this patient is seriously ill, and people absolutely refusing to come out and being unable to get very ill patients into hospitals. Is that part of your experience? I I suppose it's difficult for me to speak for GP practices everywhere. We have tried very hard to deliver the same sort of level of service to be available to patients and they can usually get an appointment same day. If it's urgent, they always get an appointment same day. If it isn't, then they sometimes have to wait a day or two now. Interestingly, before they probably had to wait a week or two, but now suddenly because we're phone Mm. consultation, the perception is, well, of course, you can talk to me on the phone anytime. You're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs. But actually, phone consultations take longer. We're aided by video conferencing and being able to get patients to send us photos. But it's much more intense because you miss the visual clues. You know, as the patient walks into the room, do they look pale? Have they lost weight? I remember a few years ago, I was taking someone's blood pressure. And I said, oh, you've got a mole there on your arm. How long have you had that? It was towards the back of her arm. She said, oh, I've never noticed that before. Well, it turned out to be a melanoma. Oh, now, that would not have been picked up over the phone, you see. So it's these sort of things. The other thing, of course, is that many patients don't want to come. Mm. That's the big factor. So... You say to them, I think I really need to see you. Can you come down to surgery? And they say, I'm not coming there. I might pick something up. Uh, and the same with home visits. that People don't really want you coming in from the surgery where you might be bringing infection with you. Do you feel, obviously, very much the theme of the campaign coming from the government was this stay at home, support the NHS, save lives. Do you think that that was overstated? And do you think that there have been really terrible knock-on consequences from that. Yes, I I think it was. But I I think the problem was that at the beginning, nobody really knew. And we were scandalously underprepared for this because Public Health England really were not ready for this, Mm. even though, as far as I understand it, one of their main roles was to prepare for a pandemic. One of the problems is that the NHS always runs fairly close to capacity. um, And that's especially true in winter. So it's not uncommon for beds to be sort of 85 to 90 percent occupied through the winter. And we quite frequently have red alerts, which means we're told not to send patients to our local hospital because they're already full. So that's pretty regular. And actually, it's interesting that we haven't had one of those yet this year. I was talking to a consultant, a respiratory consultant from one of our local hospitals recently, and he said it's quite different from the spring. He said that was pretty horrendous. But he said now the numbers are much fewer. We hardly ever have to ventilate. We use oxygen and other forms. We know how to treat this with dexamethasone, anticoagulants and so on. People get better and go home. And he said, my feeling is it is a milder disease. You, in your email, you spoke very movingly about all these different knock-on effects of lockdown. You said young mums struggling without parents, 
elderly people isolated and lonely. Can you give us some examples of that kind of thing? Mums with new babies. Now, that's quite an overwhelming thing mm, if you're a first-time mum. I remember mom. very well. If you add to that, there are no baby clinics or health visitors available, no mother and baby clubs. You can't have your parents mm. to help unless you're a single mum. And, of course, some of those parents will be vulnerable, so they don't feel happy to come. Friends aren't allowed to help. I'm talking, of course, mm. there was a little mm. easing over the mm. summer, wasn't there? But during lockdown, this was true. And then we get rule of six and becomes very difficult. It's overwhelming. It's isolating for people. People wanting fertility treatment. I saw a young woman in the early 30s. Uh, it took four months for her to get her first appointment by phone. Then she was told that she might get IVF maybe next summer. Mm. She said to me, time isn't on my side. And of course, she's right. And that's only a maybe next summer. Another group I saw was so distressing, little toddlers, two, three-year-olds starting nursery. Now, normally, of course, mum would go in, settle them in and so on. Have to dump them at the door. So you've got all these little toddlers dumped at the door, banded by the mothers, toddlers crying at the door, the mothers crying in the playground. You know, they couldn't go in with them. One little girl, she was wetting herself. And the nursery said, oh, she must have a urinary tract infection. And I said to the mum, is she right at home? She said, she's fine. It's just nursery. She's scared to go to the toilet there. So I said, well, why don't you take her? And she said, uh-huh. not allowed, not allowed to go mm-hmm. in the building. You know, it's so distressing. You know, we could go on and on, young single adults. I mean, it's desperate for them. Their social life is being completely destroyed. No wonder they're depressed, they're despairing. You know, some of them are uh, committing suicide. I had a man in his 30s sobbing because he'd lost his job. He can't pay his rent. He can't pay his bills. He's got huge credit card debts. And I thought, you know, he's a suicide waiting to happen. And what can I say to him? Mm. You know, I pointed him towards counselling and so on. But, you know, I can't really do anything to help him. Sounds like you and your surgery have been doing an excellent job, but referrals from GPs are way down. I mean, like frighteningly down for cancers and for heart disease. And I don't know if you saw it, but Macmillan Cancer Support last week said that there were 50,000 people walking around who don't know that they've got cancer. So last week, a GP said absolutely shockingly that his practice had got instructions saying, basically, if these people are over 70, don't send them into the hospital. Did you get anything like that? Did you have any guidance? I don't recall seeing any guidance at all, but I think certainly the impression I had was, and if I've raised this, Mm. keep referring as normal. And that's what I've done because my feeling is it ought to be the hospital's Mm. decision not to see rather than mine not to refer. I'm going to do my job. For instance, um, I actually phoned there was a patient I was quite concerned about. I thought he had a skin cancer. So I phoned him a week or so after I'd done the phone and said, have you got your appointment? He said, no. So I phoned the um, administrator of the system and she said, we are snowed under. She said, we've got such a backlog. I've got 150 people who need an urgent appointment and no oh. appointment to give them. So, you know, this is the problem. We may refer, but we're having to follow up every single referral what we make to make sure people are getting appointments they're often not another elderly lady several 70 year old she mean mm. good fit lady i thought she may have bowel cancer uh, did the preliminary tests which were concerning so i referred her on the two-week wait she was seen after about four weeks and told she needed a colonoscopy but it would be another oh. six weeks and when she said isn't that a long time to wait the doctor said, if you've got a tumour, it's probably slow growing. And she said to me, that's hardly reassuring. Let's be honest, hospitals did close down vast swathes of their departments. And I 
had another email from a, a veteran GP and she was very angry and she said she had worked through previous epidemics and there had been fever hospitals. Mm. And she just said, we just went on doing our job, she said. We didn't feel it would be appropriate yes. to close the hospitals to the other patients. Isn't that what's happened? Is yes. Other non-COVID patients are picking up the tab for the NHS becoming a COVID service. I absolutely agree. And that's what concerns me most. It's not a national health service. It's a national COVID service. And we don't have a health minister. We have a COVID minister. And it seems that this is the only disease that counts. You know, the government has said, lockdowns are necessary so we don't have to make choices about who lives and who dies but actually they are doing that they have already done that with their policy mm. about Hancock saying people may not get their cancer treatments I mean I just thought that was incredibly callous thing to say people who are already frightened and distressed by their diagnosis are now going to be terrified that they won't get their treatment I wonder how he'd feel if his wife or his mother had breast cancer because they'd missed their screening and then told they might not get their treatment. I agree. I, I thought it was really shocking. And then last week we had Sir Simon Stevens, yeah. the chief executive of the NHS, at the press briefing with the Prime Minister. He said this extraordinary thing, Claire. He said you could slow the spread of COVID, but doctors could not do the same for cancer or heart disease. So we've got to suppress the COVID in order that we can treat the other patients. But how is that right? Well, I found that absolutely shocking and I can't make any sense of it. You know, I've been a GP for 30 years and even in my medical career, I have seen the detection and treatment of cancer absolutely change really out of all recognition. They're so good now with the screening programmes at picking things up. Mm. But, you know, they pick them up and then, you know, the treatments are so much better, especially because the screening means things are picked up at a early stage. So I can't make any sense of that. Can you help? listeners understand. So I heard somebody very senior in an NHS trust tell me that they were seeing much sicker patients presenting now with worse cancers and heart disease than previously. Is that what's coming down the pipeline? Well, definitely, because if you take away screening, so people are caught early, then you're waiting for them to develop symptoms. And then we have definitely seen, although I say the NHS is open, and we're as open as we ever have been in terms of availability to patients although I say I can't speak to GP services everywhere but if you give people the impression the NHS isn't really open the other thing is this fear you see that they have inspired vast amounts of fear I know people who've not been out of the house now since March oh goodness even in July and August where they're allowed to they were terrified especially if they felt they were vulnerable because they had an underlying health condition so you see even if they start to notice symptoms they're going to be very scared even to speak to us, because they know I will say to them, mm. you need this test or you need this two week appointment. And they'll say, do I have to go to hospital for this? And I say, yes. But of course, they get this impression from these crazy graphs that every other person's got COVID or will have it. And the hospitals are full of it and the hospitals are overflowing with it. And they are terrified about having tests done. So, Claire, we just heard this exciting news that we might have a, a vaccine. Have you been told about that? No, nothing official. In fact, we often get the news more from the newspapers than any direct communications. But the rumours are that uh, there might be a vaccine available from the beginning of December. And that's GPs, we've got to be ready to give it. I'm not quite sure how we're meant to be vaccinating you know, thousands of our patients, plus doing our GP work at the same time. But that apparently is what we'll be doing. We'll be giving vaccine from 8am to 8pm every day of the week, including Saturdays and Sundays. And some people have suggested including Christmas Day and Boxing
second day as well. So that's something to look forward to. <laughs> in London, where you work, COVID cases are decreasing and hospitalisations and deaths are down. Doesn't look like the NHS is in any danger in the capital city of being overwhelmed at all. So would you say you were angry at politicians and the government for not starting to properly reassure people? Yes, I am. And I think also not making a proper balanced judgment on these things. They just seem to be so tunneled vision that all they look at is COVID. They're not counting the cost of everything else. So the non-COVID illnesses, which will kill people, probably far more people, the huge social and emotional and mental health damage that they're doing, uh, which, again, some of these things are in the pipeline, aren't they? They're not seeing them instantly. So they seem to be turning a blind eye to them, plus the economic collapse. So how are we going to be able to pay to treat all these people in the future? Hmm. There's a principle in medicine, which is first do no harm. So you must make sure that the cure is not worse than the disease. Of the things that have reduced you to tears at the end of the day in the surgery, can you think of a couple of cases where you've thought, I shouldn't be doing this? Yes, I I think especially the mental health sort of areas. So we've talked about care homes, but of course there's an army of people who are coping at home with a spouse with dementia, for instance, whose only relief would have been a day centre or a lunch club which are now all closed down. It's, it's people dying alone. That's just appalling. I think those things just would reduce anybody to tears. And for me, the issue is that in the past, you would have been able to find some way not to solve people's problems, but to ameliorate them, to try and ease their distress in some way. You know, perhaps their church would have got involved in helping them. They can't do that anymore. It's just... Their family and friends aren't allowed to help or visit anymore. It's just seeing this distress and not being able to help people. We keep saying on Planet Normal that it's not a death sentence anymore, really. It can be very bad, but for the elderly who are within the age bracket where they may well have died around now anyway. Something that really intrigues me, because we were reading out a letter last week from somebody in the NHS who was saying that all these people in the NHS, the staff, are shielding and obviously being paid their salaries. But Sir Simon Stevens Mm. said recently that to shield the elderly would be a form of apartheid. So how is he justifying shielding NHS staff but not shielding members of the public? That's interesting, isn't it? Basically, he's saying it would be wrong to shield the elderly. So instead, we're pretty much locking down everybody. I just don't get that. Again, it doesn't seem the right balance of things to do there seems a great lack of balance in all of this i don't want to in any way say older people don't matter so if a few of them die it doesn't matter it's not that at all but on the other hand we don't want to see vast numbers of much younger people dying of cancer which who could have been treated so the thing is in the national health service is always some degree of balancing and rationing because it's not a bottomless pit and in a sense the government are choosing who lives and who dies at the moment they're just doing it in a different way aren't they do you feel that a kind of growing anger we saw celebration of the nhs didn't we in the clap for carers back in the spring but Do you think that there will be a a growing disillusion and anger as patients realise that they've been betrayed? Well, there is already is that, isn't there, in people saying, uh, I don't know how many angry patients I've spoken to on the phone saying, the government says the NHS is open, but it's not open because I can't get my appointment and I can't get my surgery. And I say to them, well, we're open as usual, 
but I don't have any power to get this for you because it's just not available. I just feel very sad, really. I don't think Boris Johnson, for instance, is is trying to deceive us all, or I don't think it's a conspiracy, as people are saying, but I think he's just blinded by numbers. So I'm sure people are trying to do their best, and I'm sure Professor Whitty and Valance are trying to do their best as they see it. But it's, it's a shame, Claire, isn't it, that Witty and Valance can't spend a morning sitting with you in the surgery and seeing what... Oh, how I would love that. I've so often thought, I wish you could sit here. I wish you could be the person, or Matt Hancock would be the person speaking to a newly diagnosed cancer patient or someone waiting for their cancer tests longer than they should and frightened about it. I wish they could be the ones sitting there explaining it to them. Because I've said to people time again, I am so sorry, and I just wish I could do something to make this easier for you. And I I just can't. There's nothing I can do about this. I've said, write to your MP, you know, complain to the hospital management. But um, we all know that that falls on deaf ears. Gosh, that was astonishing from Claire, not her real name, of course, but someone who we know we've checked out. Claire is a highly experienced frontline GP and well done to you again, Alison, for talking to her. I think, Liam, we've got to contrast this lack of compassion we're seeing from the policymakers and then we talk to an actual living, breathing doctor and doesn't she paint a vivid picture of what it's like to talk to a young mum who wants to go into the nursery with her child because the child's wetting herself, but she's not allowed in. And then, of course, all the things we don't think about, like an elderly person at home looking after a spouse with dementia, all the clubs that could give them a bit of relief, maybe a couple of hours a week, cancelled. So it's not just the big things that we all know about. It's all the nitty gritty. And I'm going to tell you, Liam, now that after we finish recording, Claire said to me that she's thinking of giving up her job, the job she's loved for 30 years, because she doesn't think she can help her patients. She's just having to fob them off because as she said she refers them to the hospital then it bounces back sent back to the GP as she said to me I can't do cancer surgery I can't do x-rays so basically a picture of GPs demoralized unable to provide the service that they want and she said we don't have a health minister we have a covid minister and I thought such a Good point she made, Liam, when she said that the government warns we're going to have to make invidious choices about who lives or who dies, but we're already making them. Two things, Alison. The first thing, we have, haven't we, been in an email discussion with Claire for a Mm. number of weeks. She is not an outlier. We have received dozens of emails from GPs and other NHS frontline people Mm. coming from exactly the same point of view. Second thing, it is now completely undeniable that non-COVID patients have suffered and suffered badly during this pandemic. Literally, as we're recording, the Health Foundation, a respected think tank, has just published a study showing that during the first eight months of 2020, there were almost five million fewer people referred for routine hospital care Mm -hmm. in England. The think tank talks of a hidden backlog for non-COVID patients. The Royal College of Surgeons of England's, no less, analysis conducted for them has found that there were 4.7 million fewer people referred for routine hospital care, including hip, knee Mm. and cataract surgery between January and August 2020, compared to the same period in 2019. 
this is having major implications on the NHS, which has, as Claire says, as many people who have written into Planet Normal have said from the front line, become not a national health service, but a national COVID service. And I just saw Liam as well, you know, that suicide figures are up 200% since lockdown. So that picture Claire painted of young man who just lost his job crying in her surgery is just being replicated across the country. And another point, you know, she she mentioned the vaccine as we were talking. We didn't really know as much as we know today, but her concern was that the vaccines, which they're going to have to be giving, GPs are going to be giving from 8am to 8pm, seven days a week. She was worried that that would stop again, stop her doing her other work. So so that's something else that we're facing in the next few months. I understand that they're being paid £12.56 per dose. So there's a lot of interesting things thrown up, aren't there, by this vaccine campaign as well. So let's have some reader emails. So many of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk do keep them coming. Alison and I love hearing from you because you, our listeners, are part of a fast-growing Planet Normal community. And of course, we feature half a dozen or so emails, the Star Dispatches, in our Planet Normal column, which appears in The Telegraph and online every Monday. So, Alison, what's caught your eye this week? Well, Liam, there's already a bit of pushback, as you predicted, about the vaccines. Here's Elizabeth fuming. I'm 50, holistically healthier than many fat slobs under 40. My family and I, elderly parents included, will not be taking a vaccine for a flu virus with a 99.97% recovery rate. I think the recovery rates are a bit less than that, but you take a point. And here's a really fuming one again from someone calling himself Scaramouche. We are locked down because every year at this time there are NHS capacity issues. But this year, NHS managers have cottoned on to the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to waive the COVID shroud and restrict activity so they can balance their budgets and earn an even bigger bonus for very little work. Gosh. Here's Rachel. Thank you, Planet Normal. You are well ahead of the curve in questioning the government narrative for lockdown and your Planet Normal interviews have been instrumental, providing a platform for opposing voices to be heard. It takes courage to swim against the tide and you've both been doing that for many months now. I salute you. But Rachel tells a sad story of her younger sister, Shelley, who has severe learning disabilities and lives in a care home. And the care home went into lockdown in March, hasn't allowed indoor visits since. And Rachel says her sister, Shelley, is incredibly affectionate, loves to cuddle people. She gets visibly excited when she meets someone she likes. But unfortunately, they haven't been able to visit her. They haven't been allowed. And Shelley's been missing the regular visits from Rachel and her mother. And Rachel says, and it's heartbreaking, her sister simply lacks the mental capacity to understand why we haven't been able to visit and she must worry that we've just abandoned her. How can she comprehend why we haven't visited for so long? A sad story. Very sad. I really hope that this vaccine does one good thing. It'll be that Shelley's mum and sister can can visit her and all those people who are on their own at the moment. We saw another thing, Liam, this week was that the Welsh government, always looking out for its people, has decided to scrap... Scrap GCSEs and A levels. I mean, they've only been back. Oh, only been back at school since September. We I, could have done the whole episode on that. It's such a huge 
topic. And- well, you know, it's my country. And as a Planet Normal listener described it, the People's Democratic Socialist Republic of Wales, the loony left is alive and well in Wales. And Sean says, it's a bizarre mess here. My kids were blighted this summer in Wales. And I agree that it makes it an uneven playing field. The grades mine got seemed fair, but unfair in their minds because they couldn't prove themselves in exams. It's just political. And you know, I absolutely agree with Sean. The Welsh government, Liam, when I was a child, Wales was a was a powerhouse of social mobility, oh, yeah. sending kids yeah. up from the valleys to the best universities in England. Absolutely marvellous grammar schools, the sort of people like Michael Howard, you know, went on to become the Tory leader and so on. Absolutely astonishing. And what happened when Wales got a National Assembly after devolution? They abandoned the SATS test and the school performance league tables in 2004. They don't want any external assessment. This leftist mentality is anti-competition. And the only way we've been able to see how badly they're performing is the international PISA test. They happen every three years, Liam, and they look at the performance of 15-year-olds. And the Welsh school system has been ranked the worst in the UK for the fifth time running in the international PISA test. And Wales's youngsters are dragging down the UK score. It breaks my heart. That's my country. And you wouldn't bet against the same exam cancellations coming to England, right? You wouldn't bet against it. I wouldn't bet against it. And think of the uncertainty for the kids. Are they going to take their mocks before Christmas? Are they going to take exams this year? I mean, absolutely terrible for the children involved. And remind ourselves that Germany, in the middle of the pandemic this year, managed to hold its exams. So I think it's absolutely pathetic on behalf of the Welsh educational establishment. And, you know, how many years can this go on for? I can see them not, let's not have any exams at all because it stresses them out. That's where we're heading. And I really hope that England and Northern Ireland hold their nerve. One teacher suggested a very good suggestion, actually, was that you could have some course assessment. Of course, they could do some dissertations and so on, but do some exams so that the kids get the chance to prove what they could do. Because this is, you know, you know yourself, Liam, this has massive knock-on effect to the confidence levels of children and, and feeling they've been cheated of these milestones in their lives. And the UK during the Blitz took exams. But anyway, let's move on. Sally, thank you so much for your excellent journalism, good humour and humanity. It seems to me, Sally says, that many people are suffering from serious depression, anxiety and other mental health disorders as a direct result of lockdowns, massive restrictions on personal liberty and economic uncertainty. There's been a huge rise in the use of medication, according to the ONS, says Sally, and I worry about the number of suicides, a point you just made, Alison. I've heard from friends who volunteer that at the Samaritans, it's often impossible to cope with the sheer volume of calls. Please carry on recording Planet Normal, says Sally, which is helping me cope during these very dark times. And this is from Livid of Lancashire. No one is saying that any deaths are acceptable, but they are. We all die, and if we reach our 80s, we do pretty well. My mum, at 93, refuses to not go to M&S on Saturday mornings. I walk to work at 14 as Germany bombed Salford docks. I will live my life, my mother says. As a district nurse for 20 years, she tells me we should be advocating COVID parties for the young. 
a three-week shutdown to allow the NHS to prepare him. I know. I, well, I, I said that, and I got shot down in flames. But that's from a that's from a ninety-three-year-old district nurse. Livid of Lancashire says a three-week shutdown to allow the NHS to prepare in March was all that was needed. We would, in truth, be best to open up, stop the irrational panicking. If it weren't so catastrophic, the tears I'm shedding would be from laughter rather than for all the livelihood sacrificed for no logical reason. So that's it from our latest voyage to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry to the madness of planet Earth. Keep the faith until next Thursday, when we're back for another blast-off in our Rocket of Right Thinking, our capsule of common sense. Remember that every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community. Click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section. Between 11am and 12 noon, we'll reply to them. So please come and join us. So that's 25 trips on the captain's log of our Planet Normal spaceship. And as we push on now to our half century and beyond... Help us to build this wonderful community by telling your friends to join us or leaving a rating and review on iTunes or elsewhere. And so as our beloved sanctuary that's planet normal fades out of sight once more, an Earth hoves into view thanks to our brilliant producers, Reese Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theo Leludis. And so until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>